you're listening to Say Yes to Travel with your host, Sarah Dandeshi. All right, welcome back to another episode of Say Yes to Travel, where we have been interviewing and speaking with hoteliers and hospitality professionals from around the world. Because as we all know, 2020 has definitely been a unique year, but it's also been an interesting year where uh, we have made a lot of positive changes as well too. So uh, always, always looking forward to hearing what people are doing in and around the world to give ourselves ideas as to how we can best navigate the current situation. So without further ado, I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Uh, he is joining us all the way from Dubai, and it is Chris Hartley, who is the CEO of the Global Hotel Alliance, which he has actually been a part of uh, since 2004. So very excited to hear about everything that the Global Hotel Alliance is doing, as well as Chris, because they certainly have their finger on the pulse of things happening really around the world. So uh, thank you, Chris, so much for joining us. It's great to be on. Thank you for having me. And uh Look forward to telling you a little bit about what's happening uh, in this part of the world and, and further afield as well. But yes, you're right. It's been a tough year, 2020. It, it has been. It has been. But I have to say, you know, in those moments, it's been interesting to see how we've just, you know, been inspired, I could say, for a lack of a better word, inspired to do things a little bit creatively and how there have been some positive outcomes out of it. So... Um, you know, it's it's kind of rolling with the punches, as they like to say. That's right. Well, we've, we've certainly taken the attitude that um, beyond survival, which is what everyone in the hotel industry is is obviously trying to do at the moment, we've got to look for, to the future and keep a positive attitude. And a lot of what we've been doing is, is spending 2020 preparing for a recovery. Unfortunately, it's the first year of my entire career that I haven't traveled at all. And so I've been sitting here in Dubai with plenty of time to contemplate as to what a recovery is going to look like. And I think sometimes it's a good opportunity for a business um, to reflect a little about what you do and what you can do better uh, and how you can adapt uh, and adjust your business model to um, where your customers are heading. And I think 2020, for, for me, certainly for our business, has been very much about that. Um, because the rest of the time, until the end of 2019, it was the busiest time for the hospitality industry ever. And so we really never stopped and uh, to take the time to think about uh, what we what we could be doing to improve what we do um, for our customers. So from that point of view, at least 2020 has been a, a time of good reflection. Yes, no, it certainly has been. So uh, why don't we go ahead and just for those that might be tuning in, I, I'd like to think that most of them are very familiar with the Global Hotel Alliance, but would love for you to you know, introduce yourself, a bit of your background, as well as sharing a bit more of the Global Hotel Alliance for those that might not be aware. For sure. So actually, Global Hotel Alliance goes back to 2004. Um, to put myself in context, I was the, the first employee. We were um, formed from my previous role, which was with Kempinski. Uh, I was running sales and marketing. We were an independent company. We'd actually be known by Lufthansa um, as many independent hotel brands and actually some of the big brands as well, owned by airlines uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And when I joined Kempinski in the 90s, Lufthansa were offloading Kempinski. And suddenly we went from being a company that had global distribution through um, our ownership um, of Lufthansa to suddenly being independent and completely alone. And it didn't take me long to realize that we were going to really struggle with a limited marketing budget 
and distribution to reach an ever globalizing audience. And so um, around uh, uh, 2003, um, I embarked with a few colleagues, marketing colleagues from other brands to think about how we could work together as independents to try to make ourselves more competitive, um, to share costs, to share data, to share technology. We needed to invest a lot in technology. So in 2004, we created the Alliance. Um, the Alliance uh, was founded with four brands who are still with us today, amazingly, 16 years later. Um, Kempinski, where I came from, Omni, um, who people in the US will know well, Ridges in Australia, and uh, Pan Pacific. And so those were the four brands that sat around the table effectively and, and created what today is uh, still Global Hotel Alliance. And since then, we've grown to 35 um, brands, um, great, uh, uh, very different independent, privately owned brands. And um, those brands really represent the, um, the great um, individual um, uh, brands from within the hotel industry that many people don't know about, brands that are, are well-known in the local markets, but perhaps aren't known on a global scale. And we brought those brands together over the years to effectively collaborate and try to compete with, of course, the ever-growing and consolidating Marriott's and Hilton's and Accor's and Hyatt's, et cetera. So that's the, that's the background to the alliance. No, that's fantastic. And I know that we'll, we'll definitely dive into that, uh, you know, a bit more later because you did mention the big brands and as far as that'll be interesting as far as maybe what the, the, uh, I, not to say pros and cons, but just as, as far as like the advantages, you know, um, you know, to being a little bit more of like an independent hotel versus those. So uh, I know we have a lot to say on that, but would love to, you know, hear a bit more because I know, uh, you know, a lot of people have found this time particularly challenging. And I always find that, you know, in by sharing our experiences, even around the world, it gives us a sense of this global pandemic that we're all going through. And there are a lot of similarities, regardless of where you are in the world. So um, could you share a bit of maybe the backstory and the impact of the pandemic, maybe not only for, for members of the GHA, but even maybe the Global Hotel Alliance itself, and even if how the Global Hotel Alliance has adapted over the year. So we'll perhaps start with how, how the pandemic's affected us, Global Hotel Alliance. I think the first thing to say on that is the Alliance was uh, conceived as a collaborative organization. So we've never really been a for-profit company. We're actually owned by our member brands, um, uh, our shareholders, our um, at least five out of six of our shareholders are actually hotel companies. So Omni, Kempinski, Pan Pacific, Corinthia, Minor Group out of um, Bangkok, and um, who have I forgotten all of those? Um, and the last one is, which is the odd one out, is Oracle. And Oracle Technology, which I'll come on to later, um, originally uh, well, had bought uh, Microspedalio, which was a, a company that provided property management systems for many of the independent hotels. And so we brought them in to help us build a tech platform. They were then bought by Oracle. So we have Oracle as a child as well. So we actually have some quite um, big, independent, um, privately owned uh, hotel shareholders. So coming into this pandemic, we'd actually recapitalized the business and grown it in order to, and again, I'll come on to this later, start building a new loyalty platform that we were going to and still plan to launch in 2021. Um, and so to a certain extent, the pandemic um, came at a fortuitous moment for us because as a non-profit organization, we don't generally sit on 
a lot of cash. And we basically, our financial model is we take a variable fee linked to the revenue we produce through our network. And so effectively, if revenues go down, then our income goes down. And if revenue goes down to zero, our income goes down to zero. And so since we're not sitting on lots of profit reserves, we wouldn't have survived very long. We were fortunate that we'd recapitalized the business with Miner, Pan Pacific, and Corinthia coming in and shareholders um, in 2019. And so we we were sitting on a bit of cash that we were going to invest and still are going to invest. And so that's given us a bit of a cushion to get through this, because to be quite honest, um, our revenues went down 80% in Q2. Um, year to date, they're still down around 70%, but that's after a very good Q1. So you can imagine if you take uh, quarter by quarter what we've been experiencing, it's been pretty horrific. And so what we've done is obviously just had to be very prudent as a business. Um, we've had to manage our cash very carefully. We've had to manage the investment, which we're continuing to doing in our technology so that um, we, we effectively make sure that by the time this recovery comes, and it is going to come, I say positively, um, we're going to have enough cash in the business to get through and to come out the other side and, and start um, providing the, the value for our hotel brands that, that we, we've been delivering over the years through the loyalty platform. Uh, the risk, like all of our businesses and, and our owners are no different, is that this pandemic has basically hit so hard and so quickly that it's been, um, you know, we've had to adapt very quickly. And depending on where you're operating, um, different markets are able to adapt more quickly. So um, obviously, from an employment point of view, it's, it's much more flexible in markets like the US, for example, than it is in Europe. And so... Um, it's been, it really has been a struggle for all of our, all of our brands. Um, Two-thirds of our brands are owner-operators, so they actually own their assets. There are more owners within, hotel owners within the Global Hotel Alliance network of 600 hotels um, than there are in any of the big brands. So those, those owners have obviously um, had to take direct action for their own businesses. Um, and so we, we see day-to-day -day the struggles that they're going through. We have the CEOs and owners of those companies on the Alliance board. And we're talking to them all of the time because obviously what they're doing and, um, and seeing happening day to day in their hotels is obviously having direct impacts on us. But as owners of the Alliance, they also want to see us survive. So we've had a mutual interest in getting through this together. Um, and we work very closely with our brands, especially our owning brands, shareholder brands, um, to, to make sure that we help each other. Obviously, we've We've not got any, um, we don't have any fixed costs, so we're not passing fixed costs onto our hotels, but um, the variable costs um, for revenues that, that we normally charge our hotels have reduced anyway. So from that point of view, we haven't been a cost burden from our brands, but we, we, we're also providing services that aren't generating any revenue. So the question is, how much service can you provide if you don't have revenue coming in? So. Yeah, it's, in summary, it's been an interesting experience, but any hotelier listening to this knows, um, has been going through the same thing. And it's only in small markets that we've seen pockets of resistance. Um, but generally speaking, it's been a pretty bleak picture. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, you, you also mentioned it's a, which is a very good point, is that, you know, obviously we remain optimistic because at some point things do will come back. So it's all about sort of maintaining or surviving, you know, in the interim. And, you know, obviously every property, 
every every brand is a little bit different just depending on their portfolio, their background and everything like that. But it's it is it's definitely a curious time because we all have to get sort of creative. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of um, what we want to do as independents is recognize that um, we cannot come out of this pandemic worse off in terms of our competitiveness than we were going in. And we've spent years trying to figure out how to make ourselves less dependent on third parties and less at risk from growing competitors who have almost limitless marketing budgets. I mean, just before the pandemic, um, to give an example, both Accor and Marriott launched their new loyalty platforms, Bonvoy and Live Limitless, and poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the, to the launch of these new loyalty programs. And, and we believe quite rightly so. And we, we believe to a certain extent, the future of these big brands is the strength of their loyalty programs. Um, but for us sitting there looking at that happen and then figuring out how we're going to be affected by the pandemic and what it does to our budgets, I mean, already we can't compete with a hundred million, five hundred million dollar marketing budget that those guys are investing. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic makes it even harder to do that. And, and the biggest risk for us then is we come out of this more reliance on the OTAs, which just then gets more expensive, losing more market share to the big brands because they've got the marketing dollars. They can survive this and still have marketing dollars at the end. So what we decided to do is take a for a small business at least, uh, uh, um, an approach that was we need to keep investing in our platform because that's what we knew for the last 15 years was the way that independents were going to survive was by working together and collaborating um, in, in this alliance. And so we, we doubled down to a certain extent during the pandemic. We said we're going to keep going. We know that it would have been easy to sit on the cash that we brought into the business and say, we'll just wait and see what happens. But, but we know that the recovery will come um, if, if the news about the vaccine this week is, 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 is anyway even half true, then things are looking rosier for sure. And people are going to start traveling again and we need to be ready for that. And so we, we believe that we've taken the right approach, which is to keep investing as a collaborative group in, in the future of independence. And, and we, we believe that way the independent, um, the, the independent brands that we represent will... We'll be in a stronger position to to bounce back, um, which obviously we know the big OTAs and big brands are going to be anyway, because that's who they are. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, of course. So, uh, well, shifting gears a little bit, would love because to talk a little bit more of the role of independent hotel brands, uh, obviously, especially in today's world. From consumer trust, but also to competing with the big players. I know I have I have a lot of opinions on this, but I would love to hear yours. What do what are those advantages? What advantages do those independent hotel brands have? Well, I think again, it goes back to what I said earlier about um, my coming from Kempinski, where we were owned by Lufthansa, and it's kind of interesting if you look back at the history of the hotel industry in the second half of the twentieth century and coming into to to the first part of this century. Airlines um, had a huge influence over hotel groups and they own many of the the big hotel groups if you actually go back to the sort of 1940s 1950s i mean not everyone let's say can uh, recall but um, brands like uh, um, intercontinental were born from pan am Uh, air france uh, air france owned meridian or created meridian Uh, klm had golden tulip lufthansa had kempinski 
uh, even today still, there's the remnants of JAL hotels and ANA hotels in Japan. And if you look around the world, the logical thing for airlines to do over that time was to build hotel companies to put their customers in when they went to these emerging destinations around the world. And what were consumers looking for? And that's what Hilton and Marriott were building at the same time, consecutively as, as independent um, brands of, of their day. They were building hotels in places people were starting to travel to. And in the 50s and 60s, it was all the glamour of the jet set era. And then by the 70s and 80s, it was the, it was the emergence of business travelers and volume business travelers. And what business travelers wanted and what their companies wanted were hotels that people could go to that were reliable, that were safe, that were secure, that were dependable, that had hot water and electricity. This was before the internet era. And if they were lucky, a television or a phone to be able to stay in contact back at home. And, and that defined hotel products for business travelers. So what you saw in the 80s and the 90s, um, airlines realized they couldn't afford to operate airlines and hotels so started selling off these and so the hotel assets and, and the, the, the Marriott and Hilton's acquired those and got bigger. And, and what they did is they said, we've got to be very good at branding. We've got, you know, Marriott has to be a Marriott. Everyone has to trust Marriott wherever they travel. Everyone has to trust Hilton wherever they travel. My father who traveled, owned a family business in the 60s and 70s, he always said to me, oh, you know, the Hilton in Cairo, it's the best hotel. And I always said the JW Marriott in Hong Kong, whatever it was. And, 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 and I was brought up on the notion that a hotel was good because of the brand flag that it had. Um, but what, what, what I believe changed by the time I joined the industry in the 90, early 1990s was that those big brands had over-commoditized these hotels. And so what happened is that they were catering for a growing business travel audience who were fine. And, and then the travel management companies took over business travel. And... So what happened is that everything became a big commoditized segment. So business travelers had to stay in a certain type of hotel that was controlled by a travel management company. They put down on pressure on prices. Those hotels couldn't afford to be as glamorous as they were in the old days. So bit, bit by bit, business travel became commoditized. And so by the time you come into the 21st century, um, you're starting to see um, a, a, the segment that was the, the lucrative segment for hoteliers, business travel and meetings to a certain extent, losing their attraction because rates were being pushed downwards by the travel management company. Products were being commoditized and, and standardized. And so suddenly we started to realize that, and, and then of course you had the, I should mention the online travel agents who then put even more downward pressure on prices as they started to make it easy easier and easier for, for, for hotels to distribute through more and more channels. And, and so what, what you got to is, is a situation where um, the, the industry had to start looking to what had previously, ironically, been the cheap segment, the tour operators, the leisure segment. And suddenly, as, uh, as, as travel opened up at the beginning of this century, leisure travel exploded at the beginning of this century with especially with the opening up of China and the Alpine India market. And, and, and suddenly, you know, nearly every country in the world, now you can get an e-visa. It was suddenly possible to go pretty much anywhere. And suddenly hoteliers have realized that it's, it's leisure travelers who have, have become the future. And so where I, where I see that is an opportunity for the independent sector like never before, because whereas business travel were being herded 
like sheep into these standardized hotels at the lowest possible price determined by travel management companies. Suddenly leisure travelers come along and they're like, I don't want to stay in the same Marriott hotel that I went on business to. I don't want to stay in that grubby old Hilton in downtown Dallas or whatever it is. I actually want a different experience. And an independent, ironically, independence offer that because their brands are not particularly well known. They're not on the business traveler circuit. And so what we saw is an opportunity to bring all of these independent brands together and say, right, they're not actually particularly well known by business travelers, but a leisure travel audience that we can now reach because of technology, we can reach because of the internet. If we can get all and bring all these hotels together, we're actually offering, offering a different experience to, to these uh, consumers, the, this emerging leisure consumer. And, and suddenly we can actually compete because we don't need to be the standardized Marriott. We can actually be different. And so to me, the, the opportunity for independence is growing. I think that's why a lot of private equity money has gone into hotels. But the irony is the Marriott's and the Hilton's the highest of all franchise now because they, they, they don't own anything. They don't manage anything. They just franchise it. They just a flag on it. And so because of that, they've had to diversify their brands because suddenly they realize, oh, my God, uh, business travelers are being herded into our satellite hotels. But actually, the premium leisure traveler who's actually spending a lot more than the business traveler is actually looking for a different experience. And suddenly you get brands like Accor that was basically Mercure, Ibis, and Novotel is suddenly owning Fairmonts and Raffles and Swiss Hotel and, and uh, Rixos and you name all of these exotic individual brands that they're bringing into their stable because they know that future profit is going to come from premium leisure travel. So that's a long way of saying I think the independent sector has a rosy future. I think business travel as we know it had any way be dumbed down and commoditized pre-COVID. And now post-COVID, what we're doing now, talking from the other end of the world on a podcast, able to talk, we're able to see each other. I mean, guess what? Business travel is going to become even more of a commodity. I mean, it's like, why would I pay $10,000 to fly to the other end of the world if I can have this meeting face-to-face? -face? And so I think then you say, oh, my God, well, what are we going to do now? Leisure travel. That's what it's going to be about. And what do leisure travelers want? They want experiences. And what do they want? They want different experiences. And, and, and so that's a somewhat passionate speech to say, I think, independent hotels and, and premium leisure travel is, is, is where the, we have to build our future. Certainly from our point of view, of course, the big brands have a different idea and they will do a very good job at creating lots of new brands and diversifying their brand stables. But I think the owner operators have a chance to compete and where you own your asset and you can make decisions quickly. I think um, we've got a bigger and bigger chance of, of, of of having a go at demonstrating to consumers that we we've got something exciting to propose. Yeah, exactly. And you you know you you touched on it just at the end there, but you bring up a very good point is that you know these independent hoteliers, uh, hotel owners as well are far they can they can be far more nimble and they can make those quick changes as yeah. um, as they need to. But um, I have to say. What you just said was so was bringing so much joy to me because you just really brought us through, in essence, the the modern day history of hotels as we know it. And um, I want to encourage, by the way, anybody that's listening to this to go back and listen to that because you did a beautiful job of describing how the hotel industry has certainly evolved in the past sixty years, seventy years, you know, and that sort of thing. So. Kudos to you for that. That was fantastically described. And it really 
and that, by the way, sharing that backstory provides a lot of understanding for where we are today and what consumers are looking for. And so thank you for explaining that so beautifully. Um, uh, that being um, said, so I you touched on a while ago uh, talking about loyalty programs. And so I know that the GHA is known for its discovery program. Um, and so can we talk about how that was originally founded and how it's maybe evolved to be more relevant this year? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, we, we knew that we needed a loyalty platform. But what we had when we created the alliance is all of these very small brands, independent brands with loyalty programs. And I was the first one, I, even at Kempinski, we had, I don't know, at the time, 30, 40 hotels. And I remember having these discussions and everyone said, we need a loyalty program. I'm like, why do we need How can we have a loyalty program with 10, 20, 30 hotels? It's crazy. I mean, what are you going to do? Someone has a car, they stay in one of your hotels, maybe two. Maybe three if you're really lucky. But basically, there's no loyalty of customers more than to one hotel. Yeah, there's a lot of loyalty to individual hotels. We know that business travelers, people who live nearby or people who have been going to a certain hotel on holiday for many years. But that was a certain type of traveler, a certain type of generation. Today's travelers, as I was just explaining, are moving around the world faster than ever. Business travelers anyway, are going where the company sends them and their loyalty is to where their company tells them they can stay. And then they, and, and so, you know, to try and compete, to try and even imagine that a small brand of 10, 20, 30, 40 hotels can compete with a stable of Marriott brands or um, uh, Accor or Hilton um, in, a, in a loyalty platform is ridiculous. So first thing I wanted to do um, when we created the alliance is it took me five years to do it. It's persuade everyone, guys, we cannot, have individual loyalty programs anymore. You've got to get rid of them. You've got to fold them into one program and we'll operate it for you. A, the technology will be cheaper if we do it together. B, we'll have more customers. C, we'll have more choice for those customers. And D, as I just said, we've got some great brands. If we can put these brands in front of customers who've never heard of them before, hey, guess what? They've actually moved between our brands and create what we've called cross-brand revenues. And so... 10 years ago, pretty much exactly, we created this program discovery. Um, already at the time, as I just described, it was we felt it was the end of the business travel era. We felt that it was the dawn of the leisure traveler, the luxury level traveler, or premium leisure traveler, as I call it. And we did a lot of research that said, stop giving points away to business travelers in the hope they come back and use them on a leisure stay. It's not what we want anymore. What we want is unique experiences when we travel. And so back in 2010, we did um, a lot of co-creation workshops with customers over a period of about a year with all of our different brands. At the time, we'd grown to about 12 brands. And our conclusion was don't do a Pokes program, don't do a free nights program, don't try and compete with Marriott or uh, Hilton and create a program built around experiences. And so what we created is the notion of discovery and local experiences. We brought all of our brands onto one platform. At the time we had a million members that's grown in the meantime to 17 million members by sharing our data. So Oracle came in and created a technology platform for us so that we could recognize each other's guests. And it was all about experiences. And in 2010, we launched local experiences. We created 2000 local experiences that became our rewards. So when customers stayed in our hotels, we said, thank you for being loyal to us. We've got these great experiences. You can have a unique uh, balloon ride. Uh, 
you can have uh, a special spa treatment, you can maybe have dinner for two on the beach. Didn't matter what it was, we each hotel got to create these unique experiences. And we, we gave those away as rewards. And guess what? 10 years later, every single major brand has built that loyalty program around experiences because of, it was obvious to us that was the direction it was going. And it was obvious to us, it was just a question of a matter of time before the others realized that the business traveler, commoditized, cheap points collector was going to be replaced by the leisure traveler who was becoming, in 2010 already, the advent of social media was becoming all about Instagram. And what can I tell my friends I'll be doing? I'm bugging this. And so we, we felt already 10 years ago, we had created something that was, was, was ahead of its time. And so over that period, what completely ahead of its time by the way we we then said right now we've got the platform let's go and invite other brands to join and that's when we went into a rapid growth phase so as i said 10 years ago we were 10 12 brands who created discovery and as we grew our customer base of course we became more attractive so bit by bit we added brands and in 2019 we had our record year we added six new brands um we just felt we it, it, it was it's become an easy sell to independents. It's like, guys, are you going to join Marriott as one of their independent brands? Are you going to sell out completely to private equity? And then anyway, the private equity guys need to decide that they want to pay Marriott to run their hotels for them or run their loyalty program. Or are you going to do something with, with an organization like ours who's effectively not designed to make money anyway? So it's good value um, from that point of view as well. So we, we, we had to finally balance an loyalty program that was... Uh, our customers were our brands, but at the same time, our customers were the Discovery members. Um, but the people serving those Discovery members were our hotels, and we don't operate hotels. We, we, our brands do. And so the technology was the key. The technology was the glue that held all this thing together because what I needed to make sure when we launched this program is that if you take me as customer number one, that I could leave my Kempinski Hotel go to a Pan Pacific in Singapore, walk through the door and the technology recognized me. And that was, the, that, that was really the key to the Discovery Program's success and our ability to build um, a customer database that was rich, that had good profile information, good personal information, and therefore build a CRM and marketing strategy around that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what we've done. Last year, uh, as I said, 35 brands, uh, we did $2 billion in revenue went through the discovery program. But most importantly, um, about 10% of that was revenue going between our brands. Now, that 10% doesn't sound a lot, but if you take the total revenue going through our brands, that's around $200 million. Now, $200 million moving from Kempinski to Pan Pacific to Capella to, to Ridges, all of these brands look at that revenue as incremental. They're like, wow, I mean, this is a Kempinski customer coming to me and I didn't have to do any marketing. I didn't have to go on a sales call. I've just been able to reach this customer through this collaborative program. And so the, the value to our brands, and by the way, in, in our best hotels, which tend to be in big cities or pre-COVID were in big cities, um, you know, they, they, they were getting up to six, seven, eight points in occupancy from the other brands within the alliance. So if you think about that as a marketing strategy and you're sitting doing your budget and say, well, next year we're going to do 70% occupancy, I can walk in to a hotel in Singapore, we'll say, join the alliance and you might do 75% occupancy. Now, again, that's that, that, that's not 
something that makes or breaks a business as such. But what it does is add incremental revenue to at, at a premium rate because our rates are generally 10 to 15 percent higher than your average rate in, in a business because it's generally leisure what we're moving between the, the brands and that's a pretty compelling business proposition for an independent hotel or an independent brand so yeah that's that's what it's all about we think it's good for consumers because they get to be part of a program that introduces new brands new experiences new hotels and we think it's good for our hotels because you know, you can have Capella with 10 hotels and, and suddenly they've got an audience of 17 million customers, um, which is expensive to reach on your own. So, yeah, that's discovery. That's fantastic. I mean, wow, as you're just saying this, it's just so interesting to hear how ahead of the curve you were. Because, I mean, just in, really, I, I feel like in certainly in, in the local market that, that I'm talking about, as far as even like in Los Angeles and the hotel brands that I've been working with, I feel like it was really only st- maybe 2015, 2016, we started really talking about more of the experiences. Uh, that So I think it, you certainly tapped into it a lot earlier than others. And then I think that's also case in point or, or at least um, accentuating the slower moving aspect of these larger brands is that it was taking them this long to hop on this train where you very much identified it right away and doubled down on it. And it's, I mean, so when it comes to loyalty programs, <laughs> you've been doing it and doing it well. Uh, and I think to the, to how travelers are just responding to it as well too, for quite some time. Yeah, it's interesting. When we launched local experiences, everyone looked at us. And I remember a lot of general managers saying, you know, I mean, no one's going to get this whole local experience. They just want free nights. And I went, they will, because we're not going to cater for a business traveler. We're going to cater for a leisure traveler. A lot of our, you know, of the 600 hotels, a a good chunk of those, probably 200 plus, um, are resort hotels. And so obviously they were catering for leisure travelers. But it was interesting that it took a year or so for people to understand this notion of local experiences rewards. But as people got awareness of it, our local experience redemption rates are the same as free nights. So people have actually, you know, at the top tiers, we're seeing up to 40% of, of, the, of these experiences that we are issuing as, 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 as free rewards, uh, as thank yous, if you like, for, for loyalty. Um, we're, getting, we're getting 40% redemption rate, which means people aren't just leaving them in in, in on their accounts and not understanding what they are, they're actually going, wow, that's, that's great. And they're valuable. I mean, the, the, the best experiences can be worth $300. So it's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not a cheap, uh, cheap giveaway. So, it, but it's changing also the mindset of customers. It's giving them actually what they want. Maybe they didn't know they want because they're used to loyalty programs being about points. And suddenly someone checks into a hotel and gets told, hey, guess what? You've got a local experience on your account. We can give you this balloon ride over the um, over the Serengeti tomorrow morning um, for free, and and suddenly you know you engage with that customer very differently. Uh, I, I we've got lots of other things to talk about. I have to give you one story that came out of um, our, our initial research about discovery was um, this this brilliant notion that if you were sitting on a plane and you were um, going home from a travel experience, uh, a trip you've been on, would you ever t- t- turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I, I, I don't know who you are, we haven't met before, but I have to tell you 
Um, I got double miles on this flight. They probably turn away from you and put their eyeshades over and make sure they didn't engage in further conversation. If you had the opportunity to turn to this person next to you, you didn't know and say, you know what? I just went to this hotel and they gave me this amazing balloon ride or they gave me, you know, a, a night cruise around uh, Bangkok on the canals or something. That's actually a conversation opener. It's something that you're going to talk to people about and it would actually um, get people motivated and excited about travel, both from you personally, but also people you're talking to. And, and I think that sort of summarized where travel has gone. It's like people don't care. I mean, yes, it's nice to collect free points and free nights, but at the end of the day, life is about experiences. It's, that, that's where social media has exploded. It's because... Instagram is about showing off what you did, and that does not involve, you know, copying your your Lufthansa mileage statement to say you got double miles on your last flight. So that, to me, is 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 what signifies where where travel is going and the new type of customer that we we have to cater for. Exactly. Well, I think, and you bring up a great point because as soon as hotels started understanding that maybe they weren't necessarily the destination, but they helped facilitate travelers to experience the destination. And yes, obviously there are certain hotels that are, it's like they are those signature hotels, those yeah. that everybody wants to experience because of their iconic for whatever reason, of course, but you know, they're, they're part of the experience and maybe not the experience full stop. And so once they can kind of embrace that and then embrace the destination that they're around, and we have, we've certainly seen this um, over the years. I mean, that that's really where the game changer is because it, there's so much more than just a hotel. So you, you've touched on this and I, I want to, you know, get into a couple of these other questions and you are definitely a wealth of knowledge. This is incredible. Um, but so on a global level, what traveler trends were you seeing pre-COVID and what are you seeing now? I know we touched on experiences, but even if it's something more in depth to that. Well, I, I, there are lots, but, but let, me, let me summarize the ones that I, think, that I think we were seeing anyway, but they're going to be accelerated post-COVID. I think premium leisure I've already touched on, overtaking business travel. Um, premium Business class, from an airline perspective, as we know it, if, well, certainly someone as old as me who's grown up since then, business class was for business travelers. Business class post-COVID is for leisure travelers. You get on an Emirates flight, I live in Dubai, A380, top tech, business class, all leisure travelers. That's not true, obviously. That's an exaggeration. But my point is that that's how Emirates has built the success of its business class product is putting leisure travelers into their premium classes. That's going to continue and it's going to accelerate. Staycations are going to also become what we call live local. And we're going to do a lot to attract customers in local communities to engage with our hotels. And I think hotels becoming the center of community life, not just for people traveling, but for people who live locally, is going to, obviously the Maldives, are, the, 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 that doesn't work because no one lives on a Maldivian island. But even that might happen because they're encouraging people. One of our hotels is actually offering people to live for a year um, in the Maldives. There you go. Work from the Maldives. But, 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 <laughs> but generally speaking, when I say staycations and community, I mean in, in cities where you have hotels, where you have a local community. I think we're going to be looking to communities. Um, the Instagram culture is not going away. It's all about sharing experiences, showing people what you're doing. And that links back to the 
the, the whole bucket list uh, notion of travel, which has emerged and will continue to grow. That signals the emergence of millennials as a force to be reckoned with and Gen Z, um, Gen Z, as you call it, not far behind. That's also linked back to over-tourism fears. Of course, COVID killed over-tourism this year, um, fortunately or unfortunately, but over-tourism is a risk and the commoditization of luxury leisure travel or premium leisure travel is the next risk that we have. How do you differentiate at the top end of the leisure market and make sure that experience don't become commoditized? You know, everyone needs that Instagram picture of the Eiffel Tower. That's the risk. I, I think... COVID may have had an impact negatively on what I call the e-visa phenomenon. We had entered an era where out of 200 countries, 180 of them, you could get an e-visa. You could literally apply to go online. You didn't have to go to an embassy. You don't have to do anything. You just get on a plane and you'd arrive with an e-visa and into the country you went. For years, I've been to India and it was only the last couple of years that I could turn up on the day pretty much with an e-visa. Will COVID take us backwards with that because of health passports and all of that? Hopefully not. Maybe our vaccine will solve that problem. Um, and, and so my final point, which is linked to all of that, is the risk of, which was definitely a pre-COVID risk, will it be a post-COVID risk, of the oversupply, the, the overgrowth of supply of hotels in luxury markets, um, luxury leather markets in particular. And that will have a detrimental effect because it will lower returns, it will push rates down. And, and eventually um, what happens if you, like with business travel, if you over-commoditize anything, it, it, it has a long-term dilution, uh, uh, dilution on, on the, from a hotelier's point of view, in particular on the, the rates, on your profitability. And, and it dumps down and it's going to be harder and harder to differentiate if there's too much leisure-oriented products on the market. So I think that was a pre-COVID phenomenon that may or may not actually be damped out a little bit, at least for the next few years, by what's happened. There are many more, but those are the ones that spring to mind. <laughs> no, there are many. There are many. And uh, which leads me to my next question, which you've kind of touched on a bit, but you know, to, to give you like a little bit more, um, obviously a lot of variables, but predict what predictions do you see in the future of luxury international travel? I know you touched on some. But... I, okay. I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, <laughs> know, I'll be a bit daring here in my predictions. I think, Please do. Let's start with safety and health, health and safety, because obviously that's at the front of everyone's mind at the moment. I just saw a, a, um, a um, survey from one of the travel management companies that said health and safety, cleanliness, hygiene is the number one concern of travelers at the moment. I believe that's a short term concern and it's going to go away very fast. And everything we've invested in, in, in PPE and uh, and everything to protect our rooms and hotels and cleanliness and hygiene, it, it will go as fast as we can get a vaccine and everyone's forgotten this pandemic. That's my prediction. I may be wrong, but as long as it's not another pandemic, I think it will be quickly forgotten and it won't be an issue. Um, I think business travel is lost, um, is going to become a lost soul. I, I think um, certainly leisure travel is going to overtake it completely. Um, the problem for business travel is it's being attacked on so many fronts. Business travel is being attacked because of the fact that it was standardized and commoditized for years. And as the rates have been squeezed down and down and down by travel management companies, that's good for companies. They got cheaper rates, but it's bad for hotels. I think that business travel is going to be squeezed by compliance 
um, that that um, companies are going to be looking at how they're spending money. Do they want to have people traveling internationally? Do they want to have because of health and safety risks? Because that will be a long COVID issue for business travel, less so than for leisure travel. I think sustainability is going to become an issue. And the impacts that business travel is perceived to have, or does have, I should say, because I believe it does, that travel does have an impact on the environment. And companies are going to be forced through compliance issues to demonstrate that they're tackling that. I think boardrooms are going to look very carefully at how much money they spend on business travel. Amazon announced a couple of weeks ago in their quarterly degree report that they saved $1 billion in corporate travel this year. Who is going to be the person that dares to put that number back in the 2021 budget or for that matter, any other budget in the future? And finally, of course, this call that we're doing now is another risk for business travel. Technology means that business travel is not as necessary as it was. And once companies have figured out that they don't need to travel halfway around the world to do a sales call and they can do it like we're doing now, then I think um, it spells trouble. So I'm not, unfortunately, a big um, cheerleader for the future of business travel, but I am a big cheerleader for the future of travel generally, because I think travel is something that everyone forever will aspire to as long as we can do it sustainably. And I believe we're smart enough as, uh, as human beings to figure out how to make travel um, uh, sustainable. Um, but I think um, it will very much be on a segment-by-segment basis. And I think we as a, an industry need to adapt quickly now to what's going to become a, a very different normal post-COVID as um, uh, each segment that we're used to is going to change in the way um, it behaves um, in, in the coming years. Absolutely. And you you spelled it out so beautifully because I, those are actual concerns. And I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what ends up happening. But I you brought up some really, really solid points there. So uh, it will be interesting to see again how things play out. Uh, well, to, to kind of just, you know, bring all of this together, what can we expect from the Global Hotel Alliance moving forward? Uh, any new exciting programs or initiatives that you all are working on? Well, as I said, we doubled down this year and said we were going to keep going with our plans to create the next generation loyalty program. So as I said, we launched Discovery in 2010, so 10 years ago. And uh, next year um, in June, we are planning um, to launch what we're calling internally Discovery 2.0, which will be the next generation of Discovery. Um, what will be different about Discovery 2.0? Well, it's going to be bigger because we're going to have more hotels. Um, some of our owners have been very acquisitive. Um, uh, in fact, it's interesting that one of our um, shareholders and, and member brands, or at least they were just one brand at the beginning, Anatara, had five hotels when they joined the Alliance back in 2007. Um, they now have... Um, 500 hotels um, or thereabouts after they acquired NH Hotels and um, Spanish Group last year. But they have uh, brands like uh, Anantara, I mentioned, Avani, Oaks, Tivoli, um, and uh, Elewana, the Safari uh, Group in Africa. And last year, they bought NH Hotels in Spain. So I would like to say, um, I would like to hope that we can find a way of uh, bringing the NH Group onto the discovery platform as well, obviously. It would be a natural fit for Miner as the owner of those brands and as a child of GHA. So that, that's a, a, a big 
um, should we say, a, a big opportunity um, for 2021. Um, but coming back to the Aussie program and the relaunch, we, we as independents are going to continue to um, struggle to compete um, because of the costs involved in investing in technology um, to take our business digital um, and ultimately to compete with the marketing dollars of the big brands. But what we do have is owners where every dollar matters because, as I said, two-thirds of our hotels are owner-operated. So every dollar that we can save is a dollar that goes straight to our owner's pocket. And every dollar that we can share, every market dollar that we can share, is, is a dollar better spent. And so what we're going to do is continue to invest heavily in our technology. So we're going to take the entire platform digital. So all our awards, um, all of our loyalty um, engagement strategy will move from um, what's been primarily email focus into a social and app focus mm -hmm. environment. Uh, we are going sure. to uh, launch a digital currency. We haven't announced yet, but you're hearing it here first. Interesting. Um, which Very will make cool. it much easier for our um, loyal uh, customer base across the world to earn um, and spend currency on experiences, which is still going to be the thing we're going to, to focus on. Um, but essentially, we're mm -hmm. going to take this digital currency and we're going to take our loyalty program and also take it local. So we're, we're going to yeah. enable people. This is an interesting statistic to end on. When we surveyed our customers last year, when we were building the concept for our new next generation loyalty program, we established that our average loyal customer travels for 27 days a year. So I challenged our member brands and said, what are they doing for the other 338 days a year? The answer is they're not spending money with us, but they're spending money. And mm -hmm. we also found that out of um, 17 million customers we have, um, about half of those customers actually live within 50K or 30 miles of one of our hotels. So why couldn't we create an engagement strategy that enable these customers to engage with us when they're not traveling. So our concept for the next generation discovery program without revealing everything quite yet, because we're not ready to, is that those customers, the 330 days, eight days that they're not traveling, we're gonna make it attractive for them to stay engaged with us. And that means coming to stay with us, coming to staycation with us, coming to daycation with us, coming to use our spas, coming to use our food and beverage facilities, which we have many uh, great, mm -hmm. uh, great outlets um, around our hotels. And so what we want as a customer, and I, I know CEOs of all the big brands are saying that same thing, but I think we can do this better than them because of the type of hotels we've got, the type of locations we've got, is we need to engage our customers mm -hmm. all the time, especially those that are living close to us. So that, that's going to be very much part of the strategy. So it will be technology, digital currency, local engagement, community, and then a big part of our program is going to be about sustainability and giving back. So we want to engage all of our hotels in giving back to their local communities. Because as I said, we've got local brands. We don't want to support global charities. It's too big and too, too impersonal. So we're going to encourage all of our brands to engage with local communities and local charities and get our customers involved in contributing when they travel or even when they're not traveling to communities and to the sustainability of those communities in, in the most far-flung places of the world. And I think we've, again, got the ability to do that because 
of the owner-operator nature of the the brands that we have. So there you go. That's that's what we're planning for next year. So we haven't been we haven't been sitting around doing nothing in 2020, waiting for business to bounce back. We've been preparing all of that, and um, yeah, we've got a very motivated team um, working on that all the way from here in Dubai over to an office uh, in Dallas and Bangkok, and we've got people sitting at all of our brand offices around the world um, building this program to to relaunch next year. Yeah. And I think hopefully the timing will be good. I'm hoping that by June, July next year, things are going to be rocking again uh, from a travel perspective, perhaps not quite 2019 levels, but um, at least we can get people back on the road to some sort of travel normality again. Absolutely. It, you Goodness, this you just shared so much incredible information here. Um, I, I was like trying to keep myself from chiming in on so many things, but uh, you know, you do bring up such great points. And by the way, I've been saying for years, and I love that you, you said this, um, but it's that there should be this shift on not necessarily hotels just focusing in essence on heads and beds, but really focusing on the entire experience. And again, you're tapping into those locals or even you're tapping into other individuals that might not even be staying at your hotel. They might be staying at another property, but they're coming to you, whether it's the high tea experience or, or being by the pool, whatever that case is. So I love that you did bring that up along with a lot of other incredible, um, you know, ideas and, and, um, programs that you're going to be focusing on moving forward. So thank you, by the way, so, so much. This has been an incredible interview. Uh, for those that have been uh, listening, where can they find out more about the Global Hotel Alliance and and you? <laughs> well, if you're a hotelier that's listening, especially if you work for an independent brand and you like what you heard, then you should definitely be talking to us. And all the information about what we do for hotel brands is on globalhotelalliance.com. If you're a customer that's listening and likes the idea of the Discovery Program and wants to know more about all the great brands and experiences we have, then uh, it's discoveryloyalty.com. And if you want to get in contact with me, uh, probably uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's the best. And um, I'm not a social media person really, but I do do LinkedIn. So Christopher Hartley, Global Hotel Alliance, you'll find me pretty easily. Um, there are lots of Christopher Hartleys, but only one that works for Global Hotel Alliance. So you'll find me. Um, do get in touch. Um, love to talk to anyone about what we do, especially hoteliers out there, because what we love more than anything else is uh, working um, for and with our fellow hoteliers, because at the end, we're a collaborative organization. And, um, we feel that um, we represent that a lot of what's still great in the hotel industry, and that's the independent spirit. That absolutely, absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you again so, so much for today. Uh, for everybody that's listening, I actually urge you to listen to this podcast twice because there was so much information that Chris was sharing and it's just so packed full. So I would probably say that you could easily listen to this twice to really get uh, the full benefit from listening to everything that Chris had to share. Really, thank you again so much. This was uh, I, it's definitely one of my most favorite interviews so far. So thank you again, Chris. Um, for everybody that's tuning in, be sure to uh, continue to tune in. Always great and informative uh, individuals that are joining us on a regular basis. And ultimately, at the end of the day, don't forget to say yes to travel. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you guys soon.